Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. What's something you learned in history class that you feel like wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I like to call redacted history. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast, the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. What's going on, guys? This is Henry of Bro History, and for today's show, I have a very special guest. I have Major Danny Jerson, who's still an officer in the U.S. Army. He is the author of Ghost Riders of Baghdad, Soldiers, Civilians, and the Myth of the Surge, and is also the co-host of a podcast called Fortress on a Hill that talks about foreign policy and veteran issues. Uh, Danny taught, at, taught history at West Point. He is a historian. He is a combat veteran of both Afghanistan and Iraq War II, and I feel extremely fortunate to have him on the show today. Major Jerson writes on U.S. foreign policy, and you can find his work on publications such as The Nation, The American Conservative, and Tom's Dispatch. He is a critic of U.S. foreign endeavors in the greater Middle East. So for today's show, please listen with an open mind. Today, we start off by talking about the unfortunate death of Major Brent Taylor. And from there, we move on to the war in Afghanistan and the war in Iraq. In full disclaimer, Major Jerson wants you to know that the views expressed in this podcast are those of his own, expressed in an unofficial capacity, and do not reflect the official policy or position of the Department of Army, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. Now let's start the show. Welcome to BrewHistory.com. Thanks. Thanks right. for doing this. This is, this is really awesome, and I, I couldn't be more honored to, to, to have you on the show. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. With recent events, with the unfortunate assassination of Major Brent Taylor, I don't think people realize how common these insider attacks are. I mean, would you mind giving some more context into that? Sure. So, you know, if my count is correct, and it probably is, um, this attack on the major and mayor from Utah was the 104th fatal insider attack on American soldiers in Afghanistan. Let's let's think on that for a second. 104 times at least one American has been killed by the Afghans. We were sent there to train. Okay? And the mission of advising and training Afghan soldiers which I which I've done in both Afghanistan and Iraq, that mission requires an extraordinary degree of trust between both sides. How in the world can we develop that sort of trust when we have to constantly be looking over our shoulders to see if our Afghan partners, so to speak, are about ready to turn their guns on us? Um, we are told, both by President Barack Obama and now President 
Donald Trump, that the mission in Afghanistan is no longer combat action. See, when I was there in 2011 and 12, the mission was combat action. The mission was American badass soldiers on the ground try to kill as many Taliban as we can. That was the mission. And our secondary mission was training the Afghan security forces. Now, that's been flipped on its head. When I was in Afghanistan, there was 100,000 Americans in Afghanistan. Today, there's about 14,000. And those 14,000 American soldiers purportedly, ostensibly, are training and advising the Afghan army so that the Afghans can secure their own country. Now, that sounds like an admirable mission until you realize that actually, in point of fact, there is an extraordinary amount of distrust between the Afghan military and the United States military because we're constantly looking over our shoulders to see if that Afghan military is just about ready to turn their guns on us, either on behalf of the Taliban or because of some sort of personal vendetta or gripe against American soldiers. So these insider attacks are not only fatal to the people involved, but they're fatal to the entire purported mission of the United States and Afghanistan. Yeah, and, and what's really concerning to me is that how often this happened in the targets that they were that the Taliban has gotten close to. As we discussed before we started recording, um, I mean, they almost took out the the head commander of the U.S. Army. Is that correct? That's correct. So the the General Miller, who's like the seventeenth commander of U.S. forces in Afghanistan, which in and of itself is an entire problematic endeavor. Um, he uh, he was almost wounded. He was almost involved in a firefight, and a one-star general was wounded. Um, and this is only about two weeks ago in an insider attack. So what does this tell us? What this tells us, among other things, is that the Afghan uh, the Afghan Taliban has the ability to strike senior-level American officers whenever they choose. Quite frankly, and we are not absolved from that. We are not above that. And so if, if you think the Iraq war or the Afghan war or the Syrian war or the Yemeni war is going well, all you need to do is, is take a look at that insider attack. And what it shows you is that even four-star American generals are not exempt from danger. Yeah, it's, it's quite extraordinary that they were able to get so close to them. Um, perhaps you can ask me context of who they did assassinate. It was General, or is it um, yeah. Police Chief Razak? Who was he? So I know I know Razak personally. I mean, we weren't best of friends, but uh, General Abdul Razak is actually a relatively young um, Afghan police general, and he was very popular with the American security forces, with the American army, even back when I was in Afghanistan, in 2011. In fact, he came up to Kandahar province into my district, which is a very dangerous Taliban-laden district came up there from the border province of Spin Boldak. And we knew before he even arrived that he was a purported badass. The rumor was that this guy got shit done. That unlike the other Afghan forces that so often ran away from the Taliban or just stayed on their base, that this guy was the real deal. Now, before he came up to Kandahar, I took a quick look at this gentleman on the old Google search. And what I found was a New Yorker article, I'm sorry, a Harper's Magazine article that dealt with his alleged and very, very probable and credible war crimes when he was the police district chief of Spin Boldak province. So this is a guy who no doubt, and I watched him do it, was very effective against the Taliban. 
but he was also a guy who, though allied to the United States, also uh, was apt to execute prisoners, kill civilians, uh, and otherwise basically destroy the Afghan countryside in the name of pacifying the Taliban. So what's my point? Okay, Razik dies in that attack. And the typical American response is to say, oh, dear us, now we're in trouble because he was such an effective leader. But a more nuanced perspective would say this man was problematic from the start and was sort of indicative of of the very failures and flaws of the American mission in Afghanistan, whereby whereby we uh, empower these local warlords so effectively. and in the process, make the Afghan central government in Kabul ever less legitimate. It sounds like backing guys like Razak or working with guys like Razak, that would just lead to us alienating the civilian population. It often does. Um, The dirty little secret of the war in Afghanistan that nobody likes to talk about is that the people of southern and eastern Afghanistan tend to be pro-Taliban. They agree, by and large, with the Taliban's perspective on social norms and um, religious theocracy. And the only thing that they sometimes disagree with the Taliban on is the use of violence and terrorism to achieve their goals. So it's not so much that the people of southern and eastern Afghanistan, the Pashtun regions, okay, remember, the Taliban is ethnically Pashtun, and most of the north of the country is ethnically Tajik, Hazara, or Uzbek. So there's a big division, okay, between the people. The majority of the people in south and east Afghanistan, those people who are Pashtun in ethnicity, they tend not necessarily to disagree with the Taliban's social mores, but rather, if anything, to, agree with their, to disagree with their tactics. So that's an important point because what it does is it indicates the difficulty of our mission in Afghanistan because what we're trying to do really is dissuade a people that are otherwise um, comfortable with and happy with the Taliban to abandon them. I think, I think a big problem is, is that most Americans, the average American, they don't know what the difference is between the Taliban and Al Qaeda. They think, I think most people think they're the same exact group. Um, I mean, would you be able to add some more context, like the the origins of the Taliban and where they came from and how they could have been created due to U.S. foreign policy and specifically in the 1980s? So the Taliban is an outgrowth of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan back in 1979. So the Soviets uh, took a crack unsuccessfully at invading and occupying Afghanistan. We probably should have learned from their lesson, but of course we didn't. Um, The Soviet invasion of Afghanistan makes the American invasion of Afghanistan look like child's play. The Soviets killed at least a million Afghans. They created uh, several million Afghan refugees. Most of those Afghan refugees were Pashtuns from the south and east of Afghanistan. They went into Pakistan and lived in refugee camps. While in Pakistan, those very young, displaced Afghans were radicalized in madrasas or or religious schools funded by the Saudi Arabians, American allies, who 
uh, uphold a very, very stringent and theocratic view of fundamentalist Islam. And so the Taliban forms largely out of those madrasas, those schools. In fact, the word Talib means student, okay, in, in both Arabic and the Pashtun language. So th this, is, this is really, really important to understand. And the Taliban is an outgrowth of the American policy that backed the most stringent Islamists in order to bring down the Russian regime in Afghanistan. In other words, the United States is willing to put its money and its guns behind any element that was anti-Soviet, no matter how Islamist, no matter how jihadi and fundamentalist they were. So the Taliban, in one sense, is an outgrowth of American policy, American anti-Soviet policy in Afghanistan. Now, how do we compare that to Al-Qaeda? Al-Qaeda is an external movement of Arabs, okay? The people in Afghanistan are not Arab. They're, they're Pashtun or they're Tajik, okay? They're a completely different ethnicity. The people uh, in Afghanistan who formed the Taliban were local Afghans. The, the entirety of their goal was to take over Afghanistan. They couldn't even read or write. They couldn't even read a map and find the United States on a map. They weren't out for transnational terrorism against New York City. On the contrary, what they were about was taking over the country of Afghanistan, the region surrounding Afghanistan. Al-Qaeda, on the other hand, was a transnational terror group, mostly led by Saudi Arabians, who happened to get involved in the war in Afghanistan as part of their religious Islamist jihad. Be, be, by 2003, the Al-Qaeda organization, which had once used, admittedly, which had once used Afghanistan as a home base, was all but gone from Afghanistan. And yet, the American army continued to fight there under the pretense that if it did not do so, then Al-Qaeda would reform itself in Afghanistan and attack the American homeland, which, which of course was an absurdity. Yeah, which brings me to Saudi Arabia. It's like everyone was so shocked when Khashoggi was horrifically murdered. I mean, it was a very horrifying thing. But just for people who've been paying attention, for people who've been paying attention of what actually goes on in Saudi Arabia with how they behead people in public, uh, public executions, how they stoned women to death for sorcery, I don't understand the surprise from when they, when they kill a, a journalist. Like, I don't understand the surprise there and how people are just catching on right now that Saudi Arabia um, may be a nefarious actor. So it really disturbed me um, that it took the execution or the alleged execution of Jamal Khashoggi in order to make Americans question their relationship with Saudi Arabia. Because like you said, look, Saudi Arabia is ISIS light. Saudi Arabia, what they do in terms of human rights abuses, what they do is on par and has long been on par with what ISIS is doing. They behead women for witchcraft, sorcery, and adultery. They stone women to death. They cut men's heads off for speaking against the government. They do all the things that Al-Qaeda did. The only difference is they do it with the backing of a nation state, internationally recognized government. 
Also, the Saudis are leading, with American support, by the way, with American support, the Saudis are leading a terror bombing campaign and a terror blockade of the poorest country in the Arab world, notably Yemen, with American support. Tens of thousands of Yemenis have died. Tens of millions of Yemenis are on the brink of starvation. And the worst cholera outbreak in recorded human history has therefore broke out in Yemen. None of that was enough to garner the American public's actual attention. It took the uh, execution of a Washington Post journalist to get our attention. To me, that is not only sad, but it is an indictment of Americans' perfidy when it comes to the way we view the Middle East. We have an obtuse view of the people there. We don't value the average Arab human life. We don't pay attention until one of our own, notably a Saudi journalist for the Washington Post, was executed. Yeah, it's kind of like, have you ever seen the movie Batman, The Dark Knight? I have, a weird, I have a weird analogy. There's a part where the Joker is telling Harvey Dent, if I told you a gangbanger was shot down the street, you wouldn't care. Or if I told you a, a, a bus full of soldiers blew up and died, you wouldn't care because that's all according to plan. But if I tell you that one little journalist dies, and I'm not trying to bring humor on, it's, I'm horrified by, by his death. It's, it's absolutely terrible. But when something like that happens, it's really strange that that's what brings Saudi Arabia on the, I guess, on the bad list. It doesn't take, I mean, before that, before the Khashoggi was killed, there was a bus full of Yemeni school children that were blown up. And then another huge attack happened at a bus stop like a couple of weeks later. And that was on the press for only about, I don't know, maybe, maybe a couple of days at, at the very most. And it's just really strange how without context people are when it comes to the greater Middle East, specifically our relationship with Saudi Arabia. I mean, people really took the Mohammed bin Salman when he took power because he looked really good in his suit. And he played virtual reality games with Mark Zuckerberg, but they have no context to how that system actually operates and how you can pinpoint, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong or if I'm making any type of incorrect or, or flagrant statements, that you can pinpoint dead Americans on Saudi, on Saudi hands. Well, uh, 15 out of 19 9-11 hijackers were from Saudi Arabia and all 19 uh, of the remaining four hijackers were from countries that were actually friendly with the United States. In fact, one of the reasons why they attacked us was precisely because the, our country was seen as backing their very um, authoritative and dictatorial governments. Al-Qaeda is a Saudi creation and has long been backed by the Saudi Arabians in overt and covert ways. So there is no way to deny the fact that the Saudis had some complicity in 9-11, even if their government wasn't directly responsible. A lot of American blood is on Saudi hands. Far more American blood is on Saudi hands than on, say, Iranian hands or uh, Syrian hands, or any of the other countries that the United States has decided are its enemies in the Middle East. Uh, that, that, is, that is unquestionably the case. 
Um, and yet, because of our long oil and strategic and arms selling relationship with Saudi Arabia, that is rarely reported. Yeah, it's really what I find really strange and I find really hard to grasp. And, and like the more I, I read about it and the more I try to unpack these things, the more perplexed I, I really I really become. Um, I just find it very strange how Iran and Syria are 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 pin they're they're targeted as the primary enemies to American democracy and and freedom. I find it very strange because, as far as I know, I mean, there's no there, there's not a single recorded incident of an Iranian killing an American, at least on on uh, American soil. So I just I'm always confused how Iran. I mean, I guess perhaps you can add some more context on that. Um, you know why we decided that Iran is the I guess the big bad wolf of the world. Well, I'm of the opinion that there are there are two major reasons. Number one is the Iranian hostage crisis of 1979-1980. Um, we, the United States, had long backed the Shah, which is the king of Iran. Uh, who led a very dictatorial authoritarian regime in uh, in Iran from 1953 to 1979. After 1979, when the public rose up and in fact installed an Islamist, relatively theocratic government, uh, but popular government, that overthrew the Shah, um, the Americans were upset by that because our longtime ally in the Middle East had now suddenly become an enemy. And then when the uh, radical students in Iran captured uh, about 80 members of the U.S. Embassy staff and held them for over a year. Uh, we held that against them forever, even though that was not necessarily the policy of all Iranians. The second major reason and the more important reason why Iran is to this day America's you know, main enemy in the Middle East, which is ludicrous, is because Israel and Saudi Arabia want it that way. There is, and this is important for your listeners to realize, there is a very cynical and nefarious nexus between Israel and Saudi Arabia that helps wag the tail of the American dog and push us in one direction or the other. What do I mean by that? Saudi Arabia is involved in an arms race and a, a veritable cold war in the Middle East. They have convinced the Americans They've convinced Washington, D.C. and a bipartisan consensus of policymakers that what the United States needs to do is counter Iran, because the real enemy is not transnational Sunni terror, which largely comes out of Saudi Arabia, but rather some sort of false uh, vision of transnational Shia terror coming out of Iran. And the Israelis, who are the number one recipient of U.S. foreign aid, who dominate the American political scene through their lobbying, through organizations like the American-Israeli Political Action Conference, or APAC, the Israelis have convinced right-wing and even liberal, quote-unquote liberal, American administrations that, in fact, Iran is the greatest threat in the Middle East. Now, I don't believe that's even true from an Israeli perspective, but the Israelis have us convinced that that is the case. So what I would argue is that for all the hegemony of the United States, for all the power of our military, we have been surprisingly naive and surprisingly gullible 
and willing to let the uh, Israelis and the Saudis drive American foreign policy in the region. It's a lot to unpack. And I think a lot of people are don't, I don't think they understand, I guess, the influence that other nations do have on our foreign policy. I think there's a, there's a huge lack of context there um, as far as how our allies, frankly, in the Middle East are the reason why we're there and, um, or in a large part, not, not all, not all of it, but I've never seen, or I've never read about, I mean, of course your experience has definitely been, been different being in active combat there dealing with Shiite militias. Um, I mean, could you go more into that and in, in the type of militias that you would, that you would, uh, deal with or counterinsurgencies that you would work, do you would deal with? Sure. The, um, the tragic truth is that I was stationed in East Baghdad um, in 2006 and seven, and my soldiers were largely killed by Shia militias that had nothing to do with 9-11. So let me back up then. The United States was attacked by 15 Saudis and four residents of, I believe, Lebanon and Egypt, I believe, and one maybe one from the UAE, but mostly Saudis, on 9-11-2001. They attacked my city, New York City, took those towers down, as well as the Pentagon, killed about 3,000 Americans. Al-Qaeda was behind this. Not Saddam Hussein, not Iran, Al-Qaeda, a transnational, non-state terrorist group with very strong connections in Saudi Arabia a country that was allied with the United States. So, secular regimes like Saddam's Iraq, no matter how dirty and awful they were, and they were, as well as Shia regimes that hate Sunni terrorism, like Iran, should have been, should have been natural allies for the United States in the ostensible war on terror. Instead, we invaded Iraq and we threatened Iran with regime change. When those should have been our best allies against Al-Qaeda because we shared a common enemy. So the absurdity of my life and of my war was that I joined the military to revenge 9-11, but ended up fighting folks that also hated Al-Qaeda, the very perpetrators of 9-11. And my military action did little more than to alienate the people across the Middle East and make enemies out of what should have been friends. As soon as 9-11 happened, I guess there was a... I, I almost thought there was some type of indoctrination process that went on afterwards, as far as just every single time I put on the news, every single time I watched television, there was a riot of pissed off Muslims. And basically the narrative was from when I was a young child, when I think I was, I was in seventh grade when 9-11 happened, was that there was a bunch of pissed off Muslims that were going to try to take over. They wanted to kill us because of our freedom. Um, however, I mean, just reading more and, and learning more and listening to, to folks like yourself and critics of the U.S. foreign policy, you start to discover that a lot of 
why they're pissed off is because of certain decisions that we've made in our foreign policy. And specifically, like you mentioned, removing and propping up different dictators. Well, no one wanted to pay attention at the time, of course, but Osama bin Laden, as atrocious of a human as he was, actually laid out very clear reasons for his attack on the United States on 9-11. Very clear reasons. And he had three of them, specifically. Number one, the United States had stationed military soldiers in Saudi Arabia near the... um, near the holy cities of Mecca and Medina. True, the United States did do that. After the Gulf War of 1990 and 91, we left military bases in Saudi Arabia, which inflamed the local public who believed that Christian soldiers should not be near the Islamic holy cities of Mecca and Medina. Number one, guilty. United States, guilty. Doesn't mean we deserve 9-11, but guilty. Number two reason. After the Gulf War of 1990-91, the United States placed crippling sanctions on the economy of Iraq. Neutral observers like the United Nations estimated that approximately half a million Iraqi children died because of the starvation blockade on Iraq. True. Guilty. The United States was guilty. Doesn't mean we deserve 9-11. I'll say it again but we were guilty. And the third reason was that the United States inevitably, and no matter what, backs the Israeli occupation of Jerusalem and the Palestinian territories in Israel. True. Guilty. The United States was guilty. None of that makes 9-11 attacks on U.S. civilians okay. But what it does tell us is that Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda and all of his acolytes had real reasons for attacking the United States. Now, the American people didn't want to hear that. They didn't want to grapple with the fact that we may have been been complicit in our own suffering. They didn't want to question American policy in the Middle East. Instead, they wanted to declare war on terror. But terror is a tactic. You cannot declare war on terror. Okay? Because if you declare war on terror, you'll be at war forever, which, by the way, is what we're about to be, at war forever. It's almost like if someone punches you in the face and you go ahead and you punch the person, not that person who punched you in the face, but the person standing right next to him instead of the actual person that punched you. Well, that's what we did. I mean, uh, we were attacked on 9-11 by 15 Saudis, um, and instead we decided to punch Saddam Hussein's Iraq in the face, even though they had nothing to do with it, and we just made up a whole lie. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And going and, and like circling back to, I guess, to Afghanistan. I mean, do you see, I mean, what, we're at 17 years right now in Afghanistan. Do you see any type of end in sight 
to our occupation there? Absolutely not. Oh, absolutely not. We just celebrated the 17th anniversary of Afghanistan. If I was a betting man, dude, I would tell you we're going to celebrate the 20th and the 25th anniversary. And your kids, you were what, 7 on 9-11? Your kids might get to serve in Afghanistan if they're unlucky enough. I, I don't see any end in sight. That war is going terribly poorly, worse than ever after 17 years of effort. But there's just enough American money and there's just enough American soldiers and bombs being injected into that conflict to make sure that it continues indefinitely. And, and I am of the opinion that the Afghan war has hardly begun. Now, maybe I'm a pessimist, but I have rarely, rarely been wrong in these predictions before. So it almost seems like the war is, is only ramping up. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, the Taliban is stronger than ever. I mean, that's, that's just a fact of the matter. The, the Taliban is stronger than ever. And the Taliban is not going anywhere, period. Um, more Afghan soldiers who are allied with the United States are being killed every year than ever before, even though we've classified that data, which is a whole other problematic thing. Um, so that's true. And uh, more provinces are uh, are now contested by the Taliban than ever before. And nothing the United States does, whether it be more bombs, more guns, more money, is it, it has shown any propensity to uh, to roll that back. And even if we were to send another 100,000 Americans to Afghanistan, which we can't do, we can't do that anymore. We're, we're too overstretched. Our military is nearly broken with all these deployments and all these uh, requirements around the world. But even if we sent 100,000 soldiers back again, like when I was there, heck, we didn't win when I was there. We only controlled the ground we stood on. So I am not optimistic that America could do anything to defeat the Taliban. The reality is this. Are you ready? The war in Afghanistan is over. The United States lost that war. We just haven't admitted it yet. The American people are not ready to admit that we lost that war. But trust me when I tell you, we lost it long, long ago. How many times, how many empires have invaded and conquered Afghanistan, but, but learned that they couldn't occupy it? I mean, how many times did a British conquer Afghanistan and get kicked out? Was it like two, was it three times, I think? The Soviets? Yeah, so the British fought, the British fought three Anglo-Afghan wars in 1841, um, 1880, and then again in 1919, they were uh, they lost all three. Okay, they were they they either lost or were stalemated all three. And then the uh, Soviets, with their massive tank and helicopter and airstrike plane ar armies, failed from 1979, 1988, and they, and they left in an ignominious withdrawal. I mean, it, it took down the Soviet Union. It wasn't the only reason the Soviet Union fell. But it was a large, large part of the reason that the Soviet Union came down. I mean, that was an embarrassing failure. Afghanistan has long been called the graveyard of empires, the graveyard of empires. The fact that the United States is so idealistic and just so naive as to believe that it could create a liberal democracy in its own image in the Hindu Kush mountains of Afghanistan, it just stands uh, as, as really a farce and an absurdity 
that is deep in the American soul. You, you think someone would have watched uh, Rambo 3 and uh, would have came to the conclusion before the war? You, you, you would think that. Um, you mentioned Rambo 3. Um, that's funny. At the end of Rambo 3, the original version, um, as you know, obviously, because you wouldn't have brought it up otherwise, um, they, the movie is dedicated to the brave Mujahideen, which is like the Islamist freedom fighters in Afghanistan. I mean, Rambo 3 was dedicated to the very people that became the Taliban and Al-Qaeda and ended up at war with us. I don't know, Rambo 3 maybe came out in like 88 or 90. You know, a decade later, those very same people are attacking the United States. And, 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 and it's, just, it's just ludicrous because we, we were so naive. I feel that mo- like the, the public opinion, at least the public opinion, the average American is, is pretty much fed up with the war in Afghanistan. They, they, they are tired of the status quo there. But there's this big narrative that the war was lost when Obama declared a timeline which I don't really buy into because that takes away the fact that the war was unwinnable in the first place. Yeah, I have a huge, huge problem with that narrative. Um, this is the triumphalist Republican narrative. And, and it's, it's not even necessarily against Republicans. I should say it's the triumphalist neoconservative narrative. And the reason I corrected myself was because there are a lot of Republicans on the libertarian right, people like Rand Paul, who actually have a very um, um, nuanced and, and, and reasonable view of this. Um, but Obama left Iraq for two reasons. Number one, that war was one of the great disasters in American foreign policy history, period. Number two, the government of Iraq, which was supposedly sovereign, remember we said this is a sovereign government that is in charge of their own destiny, remember? They refused to sign an agreement with President Obama's administration to keep American soldiers in Iraq. Otherwise, Obama would have left five or 10,000 soldiers there. Now, why didn't the United States sign an agreement to keep soldiers in Iraq? I will tell you why. You may know this. The United States insisted that if its soldiers stayed in Iraq, they could not be subject to Iraqi laws, meaning if an, if an American soldier executed civilians in Iraq, the United States said Iraq cannot prosecute American soldiers. And Iraq said, well, that's ridiculous. We're, we're not letting your soldiers stay in our country with a blank check to kill civilians. And we said, well, then we're not signing the deal. And guess what? No deal got signed. So the Americans marched out in 2014, or I'm sorry, in 2011, the same way that they had marched in in 2003. So it's not Obama's fault. And then another thing about that narrative is it misunderstands the ability of the American army. 10,000 American soldiers in Baghdad in an advisory mission would not necessarily have stopped the rise of ISIS because ISIS formed because of the weaknesses and corruption of the Iraqi government and no other reason. I've heard you mention like the myth of the surge. Well, I mean, that's in the title of your, of your, of your book. Um, can you add some more context to that? Like what is the myth of the surge or what you call the myth yeah. of the surge? 
so the, I mean, yeah, I wrote a book about this. Um, the prevailing narrative within the U.S. military, and quite frankly, within the neoconservative and neoliberal consensus at large, I'm talking about everybody from Joe Biden and George Bush, okay? So this is a pretty wide range of the bipartisan consensus. The myth is this. The American war in Iraq was failing. It was going really, really badly. But then, but then, a heroic general named David Petraeus, appointed by a stalwart commander-in-chief who refused to give in, George W. Bush, came in and changed American tactics. And because he brought 30,000 extra American soldiers, he tamped down violence and won the war in Iraq. That's the myth. The reality is that David Petraeus came to Iraq after the Civil War had already run its course. After the Shia had defeated the Sunnis in a civil war and already segregated neighborhoods in a way they had never been segregated before, killing up to 100,000 people in the process. So violence began to decrease largely because the civil war had already been won. The second thing that happened is David Petraeus, with the work of several colonels below him, decided to pay off Sunni insurgents, many of whom had American blood directly on their hands, to stop attacking Americans and turn their guns on the extremists and Al-Qaeda. Now, that sounded like a very rational thing to do. The problem was that it didn't have a long-term plan. What was to happen once the Americans left? If we expected those Sunnis to somehow become loyal to a Shia chauvinist-dominated government in Baghdad, we were fooling ourselves. So after the Americans left and the Shia turned on and refused to pay those Sunni fighters who'd been on the American payroll, what happened? Well, they joined ISIS. All that pre uh, president, that's funny because he thought about running for president, all that General Petraeus and George W. Bush achieved was a temporary pause in violence that only led to, fed into, and was followed by the rise of ISIS in Iraq, something that we're still dealing with today. And speaking of uh, of George Bush and, and Joe Biden, uh, yesterday I was at a buddy's birthday and I look up at the TV screen and during a Cowboys game, I see that uh, Joe Biden is giving an award to George Bush. Um, I, I don't know what the award was. I think it was for a, like a veteran service award for, um, from, from my understanding, he paints veterans' faces. I'm curious how you feel about that. Uh, I just wrote an article about this today. Um, you'll likely see it on Truth Dig by um, by either tomorrow or Wednesday. I was appalled and almost went to a protest um, from an Iraq Veterans Against the War organization, of which I am um, a member, uh, down in Philadelphia for that ceremony. The reason I decided not to is that my retirement is still pending, and quite frankly, I was afraid to get arrested, which could quite possibly have occurred. So Joe Biden, who considers himself a critic of the Iraq war, or at least used to consider himself a critic of the Iraq war back in 2008 as a senator, mind you, he voted for the Iraq war, by the way. So this, quote, liberal Democrat took it upon himself, he didn't have to do this, to award President George W. Bush the American Freedom Medal, which is the highest 
possible award available to civilians from the U.S. government. He decided to award him this because George W. Bush, after he left the presidency, started painting the faces of American veterans in his free time. All of this ignores the fact that it was indeed George W. Bush who created, through his own wars of choice, 2.2 million American, Iraq, and Afghanistan veterans. It was George W. Bush, through the lies, the known lies that he fed to the American public, it was George W. Bush who was responsible directly for 7,000 American deaths in the war on Iraq and Afghanistan, and upwards of probably, by a conservative estimate, 250,000 Iraqi and Afghan locals. The fact that we are now even considering awarding this man the highest civilian honor possible is absurd. And I wish I was down there in the protest. I wish I was with my brothers and sisters in about face veterans against the war, physically blocking people who are trying to come into that $1,000 a plate minimum ceremony to celebrate the bipartisan consensus of American militarism that dominates this government and feeds the military industrial complex that is actually our corporate masters. That to me was one of the great insults of my entire life. It, 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 the whole thing seemed very perverted. Like it, it just looking up in the screen, the sound was off, but I was just like this, I can't believe that this is actually that Joe Biden is giving George Bush his a custom Eagles Jersey because that's exactly what happened. And I was thinking about, cause I knew I was going to be speaking to you the next day. I was like, I, I know that Danny is going to be uh, just reading your work and, and listening to you on, on other podcasts, I, I knew that you would be livid about this. I'm really excited to read that article. It's going to be on Truthdig. Yeah, it should probably land on Truthdig, I would guess, knowing um, the publishers there, uh, Wednesday at the earliest, Thursday at the latest. Yeah, I, I didn't even plan to write this article. I, I mean, I, I wrote it in, you know, an hour sitting at the bar today because I couldn't get it off my mind, quite frankly. Um, and, and, and that's the truth. That's the truth. That's the reason. That's, that's why, um, I wrote it, but I, I couldn't get it off my mind that, okay, so Joe Biden is considered a front runner to pr potentially run for the presidency on the democratic ticket in 2020. Hey, look, there's a lot of things I like about Joe Biden. Some of the stuff he says and has said about foreign policy have been dead on, but now I say to myself, how can I support this guy who sold his soul? He didn't have to give this award to George W. Bush. He had no obligation to give this award to George W. Bush. He did that by choice. That just tells me all I need to know, all I need to know uh, just about the total lack of substance in the Democratic Party. And I vote in the Democratic primaries. Okay. I'm not proud of it anymore, but I'm a registered Democrat who chooses to vote in Democratic primaries so that I can hopefully push the anti-war agenda to the left, or at least just push the anti-war agenda more generally, because it's not a left-right issue anymore. But how in the world can I respect Joe Biden ever again? And God forbid he runs on the Democratic ticket in 2020. What the hell am I going to do that? There's, there's this weird attempt to sanitize George, uh, George Bush. 
because of Trump. That's what I feel, at least. Like, there's this weird attempt. There's there's so much hatred for Trump right now that they 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 almost reflect on the days of George Bush in, in a positive light. And that's and I, and I have trouble understanding that, especially when it comes from the left. I, I just have a very hard time understanding that because being anti-war is more ingrained into the DNA of people on the left wing of politics. Of course, there's right and there's left anti-war ad, ad, activists, uh, but it's more ingrained. I've always thought of it being more as an issue on the left. And I just find it very weird, the whitewashing and a sanitization of, of, of the Bush presidency. Well, you know what it is. I mean, he's my commander in chief, so I got to watch my words here. Um, and I just want to remind the listeners and my commanders that um, everything I've said on this podcast is my own unofficial opinion or my own opinion in unofficial capacity and does not reflect the opinions of the Department of Defense or the U.S. Army or the U.S. government. That being said, I really believe that the only reason George W. Bush is being sanitized and sort of rehabilitated is because people are so turned off by the sort of coarse rhetoric and sort of open, uh, I don't want to say hatred, but the almost open sort of um, coarseness of the of the uh, uh, Trump rhetoric, right? The language that he uses. And so because the left and even parts of the anti-Trump right find President Trump so offensive, they've decided that that makes it okay to then rehabilitate uh, President George W. Bush, which I, which I think is, is a mistake on a number of levels because it, it, it misunderstands just quite how bad of a president he was and just quite how tragic his presidency was for, um, for not only the American people, but for the entire greater Middle East. What politicians or, or is there anyone who realistically could become president and, you know, either 2020 or 2024, whenever, who would have an anti-war agenda in their platform. It seemed like Trump did. It seemed like he, he at least his rhetoric during the Republican debates, um, there was one moment where I actually really, I, I became a Trump fan for a moment when he essentially shoved Jeb Bush into a locker um, when Bush, when, uh, when Jeb was talking about God knows what. I think he was talking about removing Assad from power and Trump basically jumped down his throat and was saying, you know, if you do that, what's going to happen with ISIS and all that. Um, but it turns out that, you know, Trump really isn't that anti-war. Um, I guess once you get power, things, things definitely change. Do you see any politicians or anyone who would have that agenda running for president or is the, is the future more just occupation in countries like Afghanistan, and um, it seems like every other day I, I see a different country that we've bombed. Um, curious to hear your opinion. The only two figures that I see um, in the mainstream or even on the uh, American political spectrum that could potentially be anti-war uh, in the sense that you or I might want them to be, uh, ironically, are polar opposites politically. Um, one of them is... Uh, super lefty Bernie Sanders, who has questioned the very contours of the American enterprise in the Middle East. And the other one is a Republican named Rand Paul, okay, the proud son of Ron Paul. And 
he represents the libertarian right. And if anything, the libertarian right is even more anti-war than the they supposedly anti-war left. But so far as I can tell, the only two political figures that are on the American sort of mainstream stage today that might potentially be anti-American intervention are, in fact, libertarian Rand Paul and democratic socialist Bernie Sanders. Problem is, um, you know, um, Bernie Sanders is getting old and Rand Paul isn't too popular in the Republican Party. Yeah, it's... Um... I, I, I just don't, I don't see any, either of them becoming, I mean, Bernie Sanders definitely has a better chance, I, I feel, than, than Rand Paul, um, just because of Rand Paul's own popularity issues. Um, it seems like Rand Paul, um, I mean, I'm a fan of Rand Paul. Uh, I'll, I'll say that first. He, he's one of the only politicians. I'm not really a fan of too many politicians. Rand Paul is one of the only politicians that I like. However, I, I, he, he puts himself in a position where he, I think he, iso he isolates himself from, from obviously mainstream Republicans as well as, as hardcore libertarians because he capitulates to both sides. And I don't think he'll ever be able to get over that, that weird quagmire he's in politically. Also, just being the son of Ron Paul um, doesn't really help him that doesn't help him either. Uh, Bernie Sanders, I, I, he's just, he, how old is Bernie Sanders? 74, 76? I think, I think he'll be 77 in 2020, oh, but I'm, I'm not sure. I had no idea that he was that, that he was, I thought he was younger. I guess 76 is close. Um, I guess we're, we're, we're closing, we're running out of time soon. I mean, is there anything you want to add? Anything you want to plug, um, you know, before we, we wrap things up here? Yeah, I you know, I just want to say one more thing. And, you know, today is not Veterans Day, but it's the uh, Monday uh, federal holiday that some people are lucky enough to celebrate from work. And what I want to mention is I watched the NFL yesterday and I watched the over-adulation of American veterans. I watched the martial pageantry that really doesn't just happen on Veterans Day. It actually happens on every single NFL Sunday now, every single public event. And I'm, I'm really, really turned off by it. And the last thing I want to say to the listeners is, is this, and, and I know most of your listeners probably agree with me, but tell your family, tell your friends, if you want to honor veterans, don't just thank us in an airport. Don't just pick up our tab at a Texas roadhouse once a year. Don't just throw a yellow ribbon on your car. Please, Please, I beg you, get involved in American foreign policy politics. Open up a periodical, a credible periodical, and read something and vote according to your views on foreign policy. Be skeptical and ask the tough questions about why the United States is involved in all these wars. Only then, okay, are you honoring veterans? Because the best way to honor veterans, in my opinion, is to create less of us. And, that, and that's what I want to end on. Yeah. So for everyone listening right now, if you, if you want to support veterans, I think you should start off by reading a book. Um, and I don't know if you have any recommendations. I know I'm going to plug in all of your, all of your work. Um, but if you have any good books to start off as, as far as maybe just getting a, 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 a basic one-on-one understanding of the Middle East, if that's even possible uh, to, to do without 
without constant research and, and consistent follow-ups, um, you know, where would you start? Where, where would you suggest people start yeah. to, to learn about this? Well, you know, there's a, there's a retired, um, there's a retired Colonel from the army, a West Point grad and Vietnam veteran named, uh, Andrew Basevich. And, uh, he wrote two books that I would recommend. The first one is called, uh, the greater war for the Middle East uh, or America's greater war for the Middle East. And it's really a history of, American policy in the Middle East, America's failed policy in the Middle East since 1979. And then another book that he wrote is called Breach of Trust, How America, How Americans Failed Their Veterans. And, it, and it's really about what we just talked about. There's this sort of vacuous thanking the veterans without an understanding of, you know, how to truly honor veterans, which is to care about their service and to act like citizens. So I would start with those two books by my all-time favorite author, Andy Basevich, Andrew Basevich, B-A-C-E-B-I-C-H. Awesome. Um, you've heard it. Everyone check out Danny Surgeon. I'm, I'm pronouncing your name right. Uh, Jerson, right? Danny Jerson? Yeah, that's, that's great. Thank you. Yeah. Um, everyone check out Danny Jerson's work. You can find him on, I, I know you're on antiwar.com. You're on Truth Dig. Um, I saw you on The Nation as well. Um, what, other, what other publications can uh, our listeners yeah. find you on? So, I, I do I do weekly columns for anywar.com, uh, Truthdig, and the American Conservative. I do monthly columns for the Nation, the Huffington Post, Tom Dispatch, and and you'll occasionally see me elsewhere, like on Salon and once once in a while Mother Jones. Um, yeah, check me out on Twitter at Skeptical Vet at Skeptical Vet, and uh, yeah, throw me in the Google. There's not a lot of people with my last name, and uh, three to four columns come out a week, and uh, I've got a lot to say, and I'm not done saying it. Yeah, everyone, uh, give Danny a listen. And uh, also, uh, your podcast, Fortress on a Hill, that is an awesome podcast. I 100% I recommend that if you want to get up to date on foreign policy news. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.